Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. One area in which young people can learn so much is sports. For most of us, this is an extracurricular activity with many benefits, and relatively few go on to the collegiate and professional careers. Today, we'll get an inside look into the world of collegiate athletics as my guest has three decades in athletics programs at many top tier and NCAA Division I schools, including U.S. Coast Guard Academy, West Point, Texas A&M, Indiana University, University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and the University of Pittsburgh. Sports was vital to his own growth, lettering in college in both football and baseball. Recently, he made a career transition bringing his acumen and experience to bear for a nonprofit that is dedicated to improving access and diversity in youth baseball and softball by funding participation for student athletes with socioeconomic disadvantages. I am so grateful. My friend and now CEO of the Diamond Sports Foundation, Tim Fitzpatrick is with us. Tim, welcome to Say It Skillfully. He's Mal, thanks. Um, and I think if nothing else, your listeners have already figured out already that I might have had a little trouble keeping a job along the way with all the all the stops that I had. But thank you for the very for the very kind introduction. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you. And I remember when we first met and you got up in a big business room and I could tell it wasn't your normal stomping ground, but you shared things just a bit about you. And I just at the break zoomed over there and went to say hi. I'm like, I have to know this person. Do you remember that? I sure do. Like it was yesterday. Yeah, I absolutely do. Yeah, that were. was um, that was a different moment, moment for me in those meetings because I was the only person in the room with, you know, athletic administration background. Everyone else were, you know, like, you're, like yourself, high torque business people in a more traditional business sense. And yet I learned that there's a lot more commonality there than, than you might think. On the front end, yeah, there's things that transfer back and forth. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, and I love what you're doing at Diamond Sports, and we look forward to hearing how you're leveling the playing field and empowering young people to create life-changing opportunities for themselves. Uh, I am keen to get an insight look at the world of high-powered college athletics. But first, I really appreciate you helping listeners get to know you a bit. So, uh, thank you for sharing your journey with us. Oh, no problem. Yeah, I um, I was a really fortunate kid, right? I grew up in a, I would say, decidedly lower middle class home uh, with really strong, supportive parents who uh, put everything they had into my sister and I. And a lot of that, you know, certainly athletics was a big part of both of our lives, both my sister and I, but uh, my parents made the decision early on to put us in private Catholic schools to, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is growing up in Delaware at that time. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. Public school system at that time was not great. And, uh, you know, they, my, my parents, while neither of them were college educated, knew 
for sure that in order for my sister and I to get to where we needed or wanted to in life, that school was going to make a difference. And uh, as much time as I spent playing sports as a boy, and at that time, you know, at that at that age, and this is something that's unfortunately changing in the world now, it was commonplace that you played football during football season, baseball, basketball during basketball season, baseball during baseball season. You know, now kids unfortunately get sometimes get tunneled to one sport or another too early in their life. And then by the time they're 15 or 16 years old, they realize they're tired of it, but they're behind the curve in the other sports. But, uh, you know, for my sister Nora and I, our parents supported us tremendously in everything that they did and, you know, made, looking back at it retrospectively, you know, made sacrifices that I think few people would have made. I, I can't, I know there's a ton of great parents out there that do the same kind of thing. And I know that, you know, there were times where, you know, I needed a new pair of baseball spikes that, that, or a bat that, you know, something else in the family didn't get bought. And I remember, uh, I remember a, distinctively a Christmas when I was six or seven years old where uh, my mother and father gave each other just one gift they kind of a small gift my father gave my mother a book she was looking for him my father my mother gave my father a new belt yet there were numerous presents for my sister and I and I, that's the first memory I have of seeing someone tangibly sacrifice it really stuck with me you know as I sit here uh you know much older than six or seven at this point those are uh, those are really good memories, but uh, you know I was fortunate in going to going to Catholic schools, um, particularly my high school. Uh, but I was taught by two uh, very well-known Catholic religious teaching orders. Uh, in grade school, I was taught by the Congregation of the Holy Cross, which is the same order that teaches at Notre Dame, actually. And in high school, I was taught by the Oblates of St. Francis de Sales. And the educational values and the discipline that I learned in school made a huge difference for me in sports, to be honest with you. Because as you can imagine, these were pretty no-nonsense, you know, not a lot of tolerance environments educationally. It was very clear both at home and at school that education came first and if the educational blocks weren't checked that you know that would impact your ability to participate athletically i always saw that as a threat and one that i respected <laughs> one that i always took seriously uh and i think it helped me in the long run uh you know in, in high school particularly uh the school that i went to salesianum in wilmington Delaware um, has an outstanding history in high school sports, in many, 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 many sports. I had the good fortune of being a part of a state championship football team and a state championship baseball team while I was there and had the good fortune in football playing for a man who went on to be a very successful college coach and ultimately was the defensive coordinator for the Miami Dolphins along the way. So I was, you know, when I look back at people that touched my life in terms of male role models, as I was developing both educationally and athletically, 
you know, I have certainly my father that I look to that way, but I had, you know, between high school and college, I had some outstanding coaches that were very, very different, you know, by analogy in high school and in football, I had the gentleman that I just referenced, Tom Oliveddotti, who went on to be a, uh, you know, a very successful defensive coordinator in the NFL after a few college stops, was a, won a national championship at the University of Miami. And then my baseball coach was a priest who also happened to be the principal of the school. So two very, very different, you know, environments. And I always, you know, got a kick out of in baseball seeing, you know, we'd be out there in our uniforms warming up and Al would stroll Father Kenny in his, you know, black trousers and black shirt and Roman collar and his baseball jacket and his hat. It was quite a, quite a memory, but these were people that really taught us lessons in winning and losing. I think that's really, I think it's unfortunate today that, um, you know, there's such a high premium place on winning and it's lazy end and we wanted to succeed and we wanted to win, but not at all costs. And a great example was, you know, if you turned into a flunky in school, you weren't playing. You know, if you had, if you had detention after school, nobody got you out of practice. I mean, got, got you out of detention, go to practice. And those are things that you learn that, you know, are very important when you go away to college to play because, you know, there's this, um, obviously, you know, the ascendancy in sports, just like in life, is a pyramid, right? So the, it gets harder and harder to participate. Skill level gets better and better as you go along. And I know, you know, I knew, you know, when I first got to college, I was like, oh, boy, it's a faster game. There's no, you know, there's no question that it's more difficult. And I really got to amp my game up. But along the way, I still knew that, you know, I had to find that, you know, you know, do what I needed to do scholastically in order to get to the, the privilege of playing. I think sometimes people lose sight of the fact that it's a privilege to play and it's not a right to play. Uh, you know, granted, when you're in t-ball, a little bit different, right? Because everybody can play. Or uh, certainly, you know, sports like youth soccer, where even more boys and girls can play together. But I, I think, you know, the values that helped form me as a person and a professional really came through my uh, athletic and academic experiences before the age of 18. Uh, you know, when I went to college and to graduate school, you know, I, I could tell that I had a good underpinning philosophically. I had, a, in, in terms of my own core values, and, uh, you know, core values, having worked in two service academies, core values were a big part of, you know, my work life later in life. And it was, to me, it was simply a reinforcement of what I had learned as a boy. Uh, but my, my, my competitive experience was really fun. I got beat up more than my share. I, that's, that's kind of what, uh, kind of what happens, unfortunately. And I was joking with somebody earlier today, these cold winter days bring out every bump and bruise I ever got in football. But, um, you know, it's important it's important to do the right things the right way, and it's important to get the reinforcement of success. But what I look back on now, Molly, is when I look back at what I remember, do I remember games? Yes, of course I do. But I also remember things that happened in practices and on bus rides and, you know, fraternal 
atmosphere in locker rooms and the friendships you make and the life friendships you make. Uh, those life friendships in some cases during have been tested during the COVID world. I've had two high school football teammates and two college football teammates pass away. Mm-hmm. And whenever that happens, you know, you end up in the situation where luckily for me, there was so much positive reminiscing about these people and how important they were in my life. And it really, I mean, and you don't, you know, you don't look back and say, well, you know, yeah, but we went, you know, five and five and, 1979. What you remember, yeah, you can dig those numbers up, but what you remember are the people that impacted you along the way. And I've been extraordinarily blessed both, you know, as, a, as an athlete coming up, but even, you know, even professionally, you know, my boss now, Sandy Og, who I met during my time at the Coast Star Academy, just an exceptional human being. And I've had wonderful mentors along the way, people like Dick Sander and Rick Greenspan, uh, you know, that, that I worked for as athletic directors, it really helped shape me as a person. And I, as I look, you know, as I'm, I'm never going to admit that I'm on the downside of my career, right? But as I'm later in my career, I look to, you know, so many things that I can say I learned from others and attribution and, and gratitude, you know, for what, for what was shared with me. And I really, I'm, I'm, I am a lucky guy. There's no question about it to have had, the experiences I had and, you know, scored a few touchdowns, hit a few home runs, made a few tackles, but made a lot of friends and, and had, you know, under, under successful mentorship in so many important ways. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Tim, let me just ask, and um, I appreciate your boss, Sandy, who's also a dear friend and an idol and has been on the show. So he's, he's he was spectacular. Um, and uh, my condolences for the friends that you have lost. Um when, you know, your parents, you know, I just like, wow, so much credit to them um, for creating these opportunities. And I don't get the sense that you ever felt like you were for want for anything. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, when you don't necessarily, you look at, sometimes I look at these kids, I'm like, you have $200 sneakers on and you have like, you know, $150 this. And so um, that, that just that, I guess there's a humility built in there. And then, you know, I hear a lot about parents in athletics and I, and I, I uh, appreciate your parents didn't go to college per se. Did they take a real active role watching you, coaching you? Were you talking about sports at the dinner table for you and Nora? Uh, or were they just kind of like cheering you guys on uh, on your own? It kind of depended on the circumstances. My dad was, um, when I was a boy, you know, probably in my you know, let's say my little league phase where you're playing at that time, it's, you know, Pop Warner football and, uh, you know, summer baseball, little league, senior little league, things like that. Uh, my dad was in- involved with me in terms of helping me get better. You know, we used to play catch every night out in front of the house. He would, it was a tradition that he would take me out on Sunday mornings after church at batting practice. Just me and him, just me and him, and a and a bag of about fifty baseballs, mm-hmm. right? So he would pitch, and I would hit. And um, you know, my father, when he played, was not particularly good. He was smaller than me physically, uh, and he was not a very good hitter in baseball. So he was determined to make me a good hitter, including teaching me to switch hit, which is a great. You know, I was a natural right-handed hitter. 
taught me to hit left-handed also. And um, it was funny, the, you know, the, the Sunday morning batting practice end until I knocked his hat off his head with a line drive when I was 12. That was the end. <laughs> that was the end of batting practice afterwards. I think he started to figure out that he wasn't going to be safe. But um, in a home environment, you know, we talk about it. You know, my dad was very big. Uh, my mom was just an unabashed spectator. She was all about it. And um, ironically, with um, you know, with football, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if she saw ten plays the whole time she was a lot of the games, but she had her head in her hands. Most of the time, you know, people would tell me my father at games was never a problem for a coach. And I'm not sure that he ever said anything more than hello to most of our coaches. He was kind of a stoic watcher in the stands. He was, he was big to critique my performance. There's no question about that. I remember, uh, I remember going three for four in an American Legion game in the summer and hitting a home run and, striking out one time late in the game and he commented to me we got in the car afterwards yeah yeah you know you know you, you looked you know pretty good night at the plate but boy you looked awful on that curveball it struck out on and I tell people that story and they go oh no you know you, you know your father was super critical and I didn't like it at the time but when I look back at that experience he was just trying to make me better you know he was just trying to make me understand that you couldn't live off your laurels you couldn't get a big head about anything. Um, but, you know, my, you know, my, my parents ran a pretty tight ship. There was, you know, conversation about a lot of things at the dinner table. My parents, despite their not having advanced education, were very, very well read and uh, big disciples of current events and news and things like that. Uh, you know, we, we joked about my mother later in my life before she, she passed in 1995, but before she did, um, she could tell you anything that was going on in the news in any given day. And I remember, sadly, I remember the, the day of and the days following the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, I quit watching the news and I just talked to my mom because I knew my mom knew, my mom knew every last thing that was going on. And yeah, we're, I, both my parents were talkative. There was a lot of communication in our household, but there were always standards. And, you know, Molly, what, the way I've described it sometimes, hearkening back to your original point, you know, we, we may have been, we may well have been poor in some ways, but I didn't know it. As long as I didn't have a lot to measure against because I grew up in a neighborhood with kids who were similar to me in terms of socioeconomic background. But what my parents did was, was good. And you talk about kids with $200 sneakers. I think a lot of parents today will almost try to bribe kids with stuff. Okay, well, you know, Jimmy comes home from school and says, geez, you know, Johnny's got the new pair of Air Jordans and I don't. And can I get them? I think a lot of parents will go out and do that stuff quickly to let the kid keep up and to keep up with the Joneses game. My parents were always, okay, you know, let's see if we'll figure out a way to get it, if you'll get it later. I remember, you know, I had a, I had a bike and a kid across the street got a better bike. And I remember coming home and saying, boy, you know, he really liked his Stingray bike with the banana seat and everything else. And uh, my dad said, look, you know, okay, you know, you got a perfectly good bike. You know, maybe you'll get one for your birthday. Well, it was 
three or four months away from my birthday. And sure enough, for my birthday, I got it. But there wasn't that kind of Pavlovian reaction by parents, you know, that, okay, well, there's a need here. And I'm not only going to meet the need, but I'm going to meet the need right away. Right. So uh, I think it's hard because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, um, particularly in schools, you know, as kids grow up, there's a lot of comparison shopping that goes on. And I know um, even today, I uh, shared a little bit with you, Mal, about this. I'm a volunteer high school football coach at a high school here in Connecticut. And it's been really interesting for me to see what goes on through the lens of a high school kid on a football team. Because you got the kids who are really socially wired and have it together and are older, you know, the seniors that are, you know, they rule the school. And then you've got the sophomores, some of whom are better football players, but still really stumbling around socially and things. And athletics are there, are a really solid outlet for them because it lets them have some success uh, at what they're doing. So it's a, um, it's an interesting world. And, and, you know, to your point in the intro, it really has had implications on what happens in colleges, universities. I saw a great deal of change. Yeah. So talk to us about that. You know, again, your parents didn't necessarily, you know, have this, uh, their own playbook. Okay. How do we, what do we get Tim and Nora into this education that we know is so valuable? So how did you navigate that? Uh, It's an interesting, an interesting question. You know, when I, when I was a kid, I don't think it was nearly as dynamic as it is now, you know, because you, you go, for example, you know, you go to a Catholic high school and everybody has to dress the same, right? And in our case, it wasn't a, at my school, it wasn't a uniform, but you had to wear a jacket and a, a you know, shirt and tie and a sport coat at school. So there was kind of that, you know, common denominator of appearance. Where I first started to notice it, notice class difference in high schools was um, how fast kids got cars when they turned 16, you know? I didn't have a car until the end of college. It was my own. But, you know, there were a number of kids that I played with that, you know, boom, as soon as that 16th birthday hit around, you know, they already had their learner's permit, boom, they got a car. And along with getting a car, there was a whole different set of benefits related to transportation, right? Places you could go, things you could do. And I could, I remember seeing distinctions, shall I say, at that point. And, uh, you know, it it was a bit of a, it was, a, it was a bit of a challenge, too, when you started to be mobile and were going to other kids' houses and seeing where they lived as opposed to where you live. But, but the athletic experience there was really the lowest common denominator because when you get on the field, everybody's the same. None of that stuff matters anymore. You know, none of that stuff comes into play. So... Sports was always a real good kind of thermostat for me when it came to that. Particularly, I, you know, the particularly in college, uh, I went to a fine all-male liberal arts college, Hampton Sydney in Virginia. Very, very strong uh, Division three college football program. I had a lot of success when I was there. Very, very, very southern, and I was a you know basically a northern kid coming to Delaware. Delaware was a border state in the Civil War, but uh, it was, a, you know, it was northern compared to South Central Virginia, let's put it that way. And that was really the first time I remember where I saw 
kids who were really, really, really wealthy and are reflected in their, in their attire. You know, kids who were 18 years old driving BMWs. And, you know, I had a, I had a, you know, Datsun B210 that I got used between my sophomore and junior year of college with money I saved from summer jobs. I it was there. It was funny. It was in college where, for the first time, I saw kids write checks and not record the amount. And the reason for that is mom and dad, or or as, as Southern kids would say, mother and daddy. You know they controlled the purse strings, so there was no consciousness about well, geez, you know I might have. You know, I might only have $78 in my bank account. I got to be careful. I had to be very careful with mine. I, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind telling you that, but that taught me something um, because I had never seen that before. I've never seen that kind of, you know, gradient, if you will, of, uh, you know, the, the, the connection of sociology and economics and people the way I did in college. It was a lot different than high school. But, you know, you shift and adjust and you learn along the way and, you know, people are still people and uh, you just try to treat people the best way you can for who they are. Yeah, I appreciate just this groundedness that you have. Um, and then, you know, so sports dominated your school. And then I really want to get to this. Um, I'm really keen for listeners to just get a sense of, you know, the collegiate athletics work experience. Um, you know, there's a there's some beautiful things. And as we've talked, maybe some things that aren't so beautiful. And so I think getting a little inside scoop will be fun for listeners. Yeah. It's uh, you know, that Molly, that world has changed tremendously. I played in, you know, NCAA division three and for list for listeners, division three is non-scholarship, non-athletic scholarship. Now I fortunately went to college on an academic scholarship, which helped my parents greatly, but there's no, you know, you don't get, you don't get money for being a football player, right? Whereas in NCAA Division II, you can. And then at Division One, which is the top level, there's more money available. So schools kind of, you know, segregate by that distinction. But as um, over the course of time, as the television industry has grown along with college sports, and the, you know, the, the media visibility has grown. The amount of money that is spent in college athletic programs, earned and spent in college, Division I college athletic programs, at this point is really scary, to be, you know, to be honest with you. Uh, and, I, and I'll tell you where you saw it in an interesting way. It was really interesting during the 2020 football season, which was really COVID restricted in a lot of places in the country, U.S. schools that were just losing, you know, in some cases, I have a, I have a friend who's at a, uh, at a Big Ten school, prominent Big Ten school, who, you know, his school lost $120 million in football revenue. And, it, you know, people had to take pay cuts and all of a sudden, ooh, you know, here, we're this world-class Cadillac athletic program and all of a sudden people were having to pay, having to take pay cuts. There was a lot of humility involved there that was seen for the first time. And of course, now this year was a big recovery because, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, there weren't a lot of restrictions in football stadiums 
around America, but um, the money, the money and success driver, if you will, has really, in my opinion, degraded the student athlete experience. When the NCAA created the term student athlete, they put those words in that order for a reason. Student first, athlete second. And now, you know, if you look at, if you, you know, it used to be, you'd go your four years and if you were good enough to get drafted and go play in the pros, you did. Well, now, you know, you get people that in football that come out after their junior year and turn pro in basketball, you turn pro. You know, you, sometimes kids turn pro after their sophomore year. Well, you know, clearly, the opportunity to be a professional athlete and earn greatly in those cases exceeds the importance of education. You know, it's almost like Division One programs are, are farm teams for professional leagues at that really high level of player. Now, granted, not everybody is at that level, but you'll have, you know, in a year like this, you may have 150 Division One college football players that decide to come out early and make themselves eligible for the draft. Uh, you know, whatever happened to getting your degree? Whatever happened to, you know, having a solid professional background in a field of your choice in case you get hurt? So that I think the I think the radar has changed a lot. Uh, I know that. Molly, I'll share with you a little bit about this. My prior to becoming the athletic director at Coast Guard, the first 23 years that I worked in college athletic administration were in Division I schools. And of course, in that time, eight of those 23 years were at West Point. But it was really by the time by the time I became an, an athletic director in Division I. It was apparent to me after doing that for a couple of years that the tail was wagging the dog. That's the best way I can describe it. It was not the business that I had gotten into 20 some years before was not the business that I was in and I was in anymore. The impact of television. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, the other night, when Alabama played Georgia for the national championship in football. Both of those schools are in the Southeastern Conference, which is the premier, the best of the best in Division One. Both of those schools, through the SEC network contract with, with, you know, with several, several, several television sources, but most notably ASPN, each of those schools got $65 million for that involvement. And you look around, you know, Nick Saban, the Alabama coach, terrific coach, making $8.7 million a year. Kirby Smart, the Georgia coach, making $8.3 million a year. You have assistant coaches now, coordinators. Each team has an offensive and defensive coordinator. In many cases, that, you know, what they call what's called a Power Five program which is probably the five most prominent Division I conferences, SEC, ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12. You'll see coordinators making a million dollars a year. And as that pressure has gone up, 
you also see this year there was a tremendous rash of mid-season coaching changes where, okay, you know, we're, we have a losing record in the middle of the year, got to fire the coach, can't disappoint the alumni, can't disappoint the donors. You know, such an appetite for on-field success. Now, now to be fair, on-field success attracts students because, you know, it says, shows, you know, being on television shows good things about your university. But um, the sacrifices that are being made in the student-athlete experience along the way uh, and the way that athletes are treated in the recruiting process and then once they get to college is really, it's, it's frightening in some ways. In the recruiting process, you know, you have to be very kind to them to get them to your school. You have to coddle them, basically. You talk about the promise of what they're going to be and things like that. Well, you get to all of a sudden, you know, you get you recruit that person and all of a sudden they're on your team and they've got this grandiose vision that you've developed for what they're going to be. And that's why you see kids transfer. Well, you know, coach told me I, you know, that I could would probably start as a sophomore. I'm not starting as a sophomore, so boom, I'm gonna go someplace else. I'm gonna get in a transfer portal. The the transfer portal is a relatively new thing where a kid can declare interest to going to another school. And there's a major NCAA rule change where it used to be that that would cost you a year of your eligibility. What I mean by that is you have uh, you have five academic years to really compete four of those years. Well, now that the transfer portal exists, there's not a, you know, there's not a, used to be when you transferred school to school in division one, you'd have to sit out a season. You don't have to do that anymore. It's really frightening that uh, in early January, there were 1,500 Division I college football players in the transfer portal looking to, go, looking to go elsewhere and play right away. So the, you know, the rules changes. Um, then we haven't even talked about name, image, and likeness, which is, which is going on now. But um, it's really – it's really flipped the, flipped the industry on its head. And for college presidents, and granted, I know several college presidents in Division One, you know, in their, in their private moments, they will admit to you that, you know, that they don't, they're not really concerned about an athletic department having a $130 million budget. You know, in the case of an SEC school, 65 million of which is coming from television alone, not to mention what they do in ticket sales and donations, you know, commercial sponsorships and things like that. Because in that case, you know, the president or chancellor board trustees, they don't have to fund the athletic department. The athletic department becomes kind of a freestanding business within an institution, which I don't think is a good thing. I think there's loss of control. I think that, and, and I had, you know, we had some experiences in Indiana with NCAA infractions cases and things like that. And, you know, hearkening back to something that you said about, we were talking about my upbringing. In Power Five conferences, it kind of, it's kind of become win at all costs. Because if you don't win, the coaches get fired, the players transfer, the donations go down, the ticket sales go down. 
and that you know that kind of ecosystem of how all that stuff exists gets very hard to manage uh, after a while. And um, it's a um, it's not how it was intended. It's not how the founding fathers of the NCAA drew it up. And uh, you know, granted, there's tremendous fan interest. You know, the, you know, if you just look at the NCAA Final Four, it's a huge television event. It's a big, you know, 70,000 people going to basketball games. But along the way, all this revenue dependence, I think there's been some values compromised along the way. And I know just from talking to colleagues that are still in Division One, they feel the same thing, but they're so caught up in it that they can't do anything about it. You know, because if you start to lose, you lose your job. So it's a, it's a bit of an issue in this. Yeah, well, so talk to us because you and one of the reasons you're here is that you're someone who's followed your true north. And I think you saw the way it is and not to fight it. And you made a, a big decision. And I, I believe a number of colleagues did the same. So just talk about, you know, how you decided to, to leave D1 on your terms. Yes, when I had, um, honestly, I was getting really fed up. And I, and I just knew that, um, I knew that I didn't want to be part of the rat race anymore. And fortunately, I got some outreach from the US Coast Guard Academy and they were looking for an athletic director or the, the athletic director there was gonna retire. And they were looking for someone to come in and fill the position. And I was attracted to them because of my, you know, prior service academy background from uh, eight years at West Point and for, you know, you know, for your listeners, yes, values are a very, very big part of service academy life. You know, duty, honor, country at West Point, honor, respect, devotion to duty at Coast Guard. But um, there are two things that were very attractive to me. One is I understood how federal systems work because I had been at a federal service academy. But two, um, you know, from my playing experience, I just couldn't reconcile what I was seeing in Division One anymore. It was not it wasn't the business that I had originally gotten into, and it wasn't the, you know, during my time as a student athlete, there was, it was not the same experience, right? Um, so uh, all of a sudden, Coast Guard became very attractive to me, and I was ultimately very, very happy to go back to a Division three institution where I could make a difference. I was brought in. It was an interesting situation. I was hired by the first female superintendent ever at a federal service academy. Uh, Admiral Sandy, Sandy Stokes hired me, and I learned a ton from her too. Um, when you, you know, when you look at what I was asked to do, I was basically asked to monetize their athletic program because there was um, an expectation that the federal appropriations that funding was going to get cut in the big Coast Guard, which meant funding was going to get cut at the academy to, you know, descending down the pyramid. And when I got there, it was really a blank slate. There were, you know, there was, you know, some football ticket sales, but there was no annual giving program, no major gift projects, no licensing and merchandising program, no, no corporate sponsorships, no radio network, very, very rudimentary website, things like that. So there was a lot of progress that could be made on the external end. And we, and we made a lot of progress and then put more money into the program, which meant we were able to recruit better players. 
and go to, you know, and go find kids from other places that wanted a life in the service, but uh, were not, um, you know, were not necessarily good enough to play at Army or Navy or Air Force, the Division I schools. So we actually, there's this thing called the Learfield Cup, uh, sponsored by Learfield Sports, which is a big corporate rights holder for athletic programs. Um, where you you rank like there's 414 schools in Division Three. When I went to Coast Guard, we were in the you know about the 200 ranked about 225th, 230th in that range. And my last year at Coast Guard, we were 48th. So we you know we we accomplished a lot in the program. You know got got better kids. One of the things I'm most proud of too is that the, you know, the, the big Coast Guard Indian Academy had also had an issue, a significant issue with uh, gender balance and ethnic balance, diversity. And, you know, in conversations with the trustees and the senior leadership, I said, you know, look, you know, you, I think we can improve this by putting more focus and admissions on minority athletes and, 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 and making more funding available to be able to go on the road to recruit more, to be able to find more kids who might not find the Coast Guard Academy otherwise. But when this started, the Academy was about uh, high teens in female, uh, female, female percentage of the student body and underrepresented minorities about the same level. And now that number is, is over one third in each of those categories. Last year at the Coast Guard Academy, 36% of the student body were women and 34% were underrepresented minorities. And, the, and you know, we had a very, very, we developed a very, very healthy women's athletic program. Uh, by placing some different emphasis, you know, we had some programs that needed full-time coaches that didn't have them, but because we were, we gained, became strong economically, we were able to hire more full-time coaches, which meant better recruiting, better instruction for the kids, more dedicated uh, atmosphere. So you can, yeah, I mean, if you have a, a good boss with a good, you know, barometer of what they want you to do and you get their support, you can, you can transform a place. And that was a, uh, it's a great experience. I love my time at Coast Guard. I, I still live in the area by the academy and go to football games and go to basketball games. Very special place. Wow. That is a very big kudos to transform the program that way. And you know, just getting back to this transformative effect of sports potentially for young people as one outlet. I mean, not for everyone, but that's really a great gift. Um, and I just like to segue, if you're a parent, maybe just put your parent hat on. And if you're a parent, this is what you've talked about, D123, just any thoughts or advice for those parents about how they might think about that uh, as this option for their, for their kids or for, you know, to be potential college athletes, how they might think about it. Just a few words of wisdom. Yeah, I think you have to be, you know, I think it's very hard for parents to be honest assessors of their athletes, of their son or daughter's skill. And, you know, like, like I mentioned before, sadly, if you look at grade school and then high school and then college, it's a pyramid. 
right? You know, fewer people participate at each level. And in fact, one of the problems with youth sports today is, you know, a, a kid will get into it and, you know, and, and baseball is a great example of this. The average lifespan of a kid in baseball in the United States is three and a half years. So that means there's an awful lot of kids that are playing a year and getting out, right? As opposed to the one who starts at nine and then plays until they're 18 and goes on to play somewhere else. Um, I think, you know, a lot of times parents, parents want their kid to be so successful that they can overestimate their skill and ability. And that does nothing but put more pressure on the kid when that happens. I think you got to be really, really careful of that. And you also got to, you also got to see, you know, does, does the kid have the quote, want to, to play in college? Because it's a different experience. I know just in, um, in the high school program where I work here this year, there were two, maybe three kids who were really college prospects. But we had a number of other seniors that played really hard and, you know, but didn't, you know, and loved their high school football experience, but knew themselves well enough to know that, um, you know, they were not going to be able to play at the next level. And a lot of times, you know, people, I don't, I don't think that people realize if you're talented, somebody will find you along the way by referral from your high school coach or, you know, somebody will see you play sometime and you know, recognize that you've got some talent. People want to be recruited desperately, but a lot of times that outreach just doesn't happen. It's a problem, problem, big, big problem in travel baseball and softball with what they call showcase events where uh, a player pays the fee to play and a college coach pays the fee to come watch with the idea that people are going to get seen. Well, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. You know, you may, you may go 0 for 4 in a game where somebody's coming to look at you. There's very, very little accidental notice in recruiting. You know, they, the, the resources are sufficiently scarce that people have to be pretty precise in who they're looking for. And they, and, you know, the term they use is get on, you know, they get on kids early, you know, they see somebody as a freshman or sophomore and, Hey, you know, this, you know, I recognize the body type. I recognize the skill level. This kid's got a chance to be something. So it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, if, if you were in the jungle mall, you'd call it natural selection, you know, that goes on to a certain degree. And I think for parents, you know, they, they need to, they need to want to have their son or daughter have a good experience first and foremost, because what you learn from success and failure and preparation and training will help you later in life, right? And while it's a privilege to continue advancing up the ladder, the values that you learn as a, you know, as a high school age or younger competitor will help you later in life. I think anybody that, you know, anybody that was a, halfway serious athlete will tell you that same thing. Parents need to be patient and they need to, you know, let their son or daughter you know, establish their own path for what, for what they want to be. Yeah. Great words. Great words. I'm looking at the time and of course I've got to manage it better. 
I let's segue to what you're doing now and just quick overview of it. And uh, it's, you know, brings a smile to my face to know that you're, you're working. At, we've, talked to, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, unfortunately, in travel sports, particularly in baseball and softball. Um, there are an awful lot of very talented young people, many of whom have come from underrepresented backgrounds who simply can't afford to play. And um, when Sandy Yog founded what was the New York Youth Baseball Foundation, what is now the Diamond Sports Foundation, his whole ambition was to be able to provide opportunities for kids that couldn't otherwise afford to play. Did it in both baseball and softball, and now we've you know, transitioned to a more nat- national focus. But um, you know, sometimes lack of resources can inhibit a person's ability to participate, and that's that's not you know it shouldn't be that way. We we can't help everybody, but you know when you look at you know for example when you look at some of the prominent travel baseball or softball organizations that we work with. You know, there are more than uh, a few players in their programs that simply can't afford to play, and the organization kind of just turns their head the other way and says, okay, yeah, you can play free. Very anecdotal way of analyzing the situation, but it's all about helping kids to achieve their life goals through their sport. And a lot of times, you know, if their participation can be funded by a philanthropic source, it allows them to get to get to school and play. If Sandy were on this call, and Ma, you've probably heard this from him before, you know, he used to say that he wasn't really terribly interested in the trophies that our teams would win, you know, by winning a tournament, for example, or coming in second or whatever. To him, his trophies were seeing pictures of kids who played for us in their college jerseys, you know, that they had made it to a chance where they could pursue their athletic and academic dreams and that the economics would not be a barrier to them getting to that level. So we're all about trying to remove those barriers as many places as we can, uh, you know, taking the, Foundation from something regional to something national has been very, very interesting because in you know, dealing with programs from across the country, we can see that the kind of common ground is need for certain kids. And uh, we're happy to be able to you know, be a, begun a process to be able to be kind of a grant awarding organization to provide some resources to help those kids. Very, very fulfilling to do um, because you, you know, my, my dad used to say that you never have to look very far in the world to find somebody less fortunate than you are. And that's really true in the world of travel sports. And you got parents that can, can put a ton of money into it. The scary thing is, you know, we did some research as a foundation and actually tied into some national research. We didn't do it, uh, which shows that, yeah, sure. Okay. You may pay $2,500 to be on the team and maybe a thousand dollars for your uniforms. You, know, you may have a pitching coach who's 100 bucks a week, a hitting coach who's 100 bucks a week. Got to have the best gloves, got to have the best bat. You know, got to travel to tournaments, hotel rooms, airline tickets. You know, pretty soon that $2,500 to be on a team becomes $15,000. And if parents knew on the front end that that's what it was really going to cost, 
you know, it, it might affect how people participate and how many of them get to participate. But it's just, you know, the, the costs have gone, you know, it's kind of like the analogy is back to, you know, college sports. The costs have just gotten way out of control. So by, you know, by attempting to fund some basic participation, we think we can help. And it's really fun to do that. That's so amazing. Kudos to your dad. You don't have to look very far to find someone less fortunate than you. And I am really filled with a sense of gratitude uh, and, and, uh, and all you've shared. Uh, we could go on. Let me just wrap. Um, as you look back in your own career, do you have a regret or a do-over, Tim? Oh, I really don't. I mean, I think, you know, everybody, and I was like this, everybody thinks when they're in high school that they're going to be a D1 player, right? For me, I thought, boy, you know, my high school were gold helmets like Notre Dame, but I thought, boy, wouldn't it be great to go, go to Notre Dame or somewhere like that? And I had, a, a, you know, not a lot of, not a lot of interest in me at that level. So I think I found the level where I needed to be, where I, or two things happened. One, I got to participate, right, and then play. And, you know, academically with my scholarship, I took pressure off my parents for something that they wouldn't have been able to afford. And as I look back on it, I think I landed in the right place. Also, you know, educationally and culturally for me, it was good to go to a different part of the country to go to school, have a different experience that way. And then the graduate school in yet another part of the country. So I think it really put me on the right path. And I have to admit that I can honestly say that I'd rather be lucky than good. I love it. I love it. Um, Tim, what was it like for you to share your journey with us today? Really, it was really a pleasure, Ma. I, you know, I've been so fortunate in so many ways in my life and in my career. And, um, you know, I'm, I've got so much gratitude to so many people along the way for helping me develop into the person that I am good or bad, depending on which day, right? Uh, but, you know, the, the opportunities that were afforded to me were the ones that were life-changing. That's probably the best way I could describe it. And, you know, you see, unfortunately, and you see a lot of young people who end up by the side of the road career-wise or personally, drugs and alcohol and things like that. And there are so many influences on kids today that, you know, uh, certainly doesn't hurt to be part of an athletic team. You know, because it's a structured experience. And it also teaches you a lot about what's important. It teaches you how to be a part of the team. teaches you how to be a man or a woman. I, I used to say at Coast Guard, you know, that at the end of the day, as an athletic director, you know, in that, in that 200-week cadet experience, that our job was to turn boys into men and girls into women. And athletics was a big piece of that. So that was our job. Was to was to enable young people to make that transition. Well, I appreciate you, Tim. Your record of service, how you've lived the word honor and your hum humility, inspire. I thank you for being a big part of the solution, my friend. If I can be helpful, you know I'm here for you. I'm cheering for you. Absolutely, and you know I'll call Molly. <laughs> I look forward to it, my friend. You take good care. All right, thank you. Oh, so amazing. So uh, my thought from the week courtesy of Tim is don't permit the pressure to exceed the pleasure. And that's a quote from Joe Madden, manager of the Anaheim Angels Major League Baseball team, who was also the manager of the Chicago Cubs when they world, won the World Series in 2017. 
And that is a wrap. I thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Tim's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 